Welcome to our Indie Street Chat. The members of Bloodhound Picks and an occasional guest give their no BS experiences with current aspects of the industry. Hi, and thank you for listening to this episode of Indie Street, where I will be talking with Jessica Scott, a horror reviewer that we recently met through Twitter, a topic of conversation that we bring up quite constantly within this episode, talking about how it's helped bring the community together and help give a voice to others. But there's also the other side of that. It was a real pleasure talking with Jessica for this kind of first time, and we hope to have her back because she was great, and we go from things of gender all the way to what the future may bring, and it was exciting. So listen up and hope you enjoy. Thank you, Jessica, for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm really excited and a little nervous since it's my first ever podcast, so... So I guess we could start off easy with if you just kind of wanted to give our listeners a little bit of your history and kind of how you became a horror fan and just yeah your biography in general. Gotcha. Um, honestly, I don't remember how I became a horror fan because I don't remember ever not being a horror fan. Um, uh, yeah, <laughs> like I grew up on um, horror TV, like Are You Afraid of the Dark? I was obsessed with. Um, and reading every horror book I could get my hands on, like scary stories to tell in the dark and John Belair's, which introduced me to Edward Gorey and a lot of horror art. Um, and I think I, the library, when I grew up, um, put a hold on a book that I just kept checking out over and over again about all the different types of ghosts and how to recognize them. And they're like, Jessica, you need to calm down and let somebody else read this book. So <laughs> um, I just, I, I, have been obsessed with horror my whole life. I, I, like I said, I really don't remember not being a horror fan. I've just always been obsessed with scary things and Halloween. And, you know, I kind of, um, graduated from the, from like Garfield's Halloween adventure and kind of the kid, um, fair, um, to the first, like, quote unquote big kid horror movie I remember saying was Poltergeist. I, I hid behind the couch while my parents were watching it. They didn't know I was there. And it scared the hell out of me. So <laughs> but but I was hooked from there. So so I guess that's my horror origin story really was, you know, hiding out and watching Poltergeist in secret. So what kind of inspired you to get into starting to write about kind of write about horror and um I will get into it a little bit later, but initially I know you were kind of saying you shifted more towards books where it was a, or, but you also do movies as well. But. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, honestly, I, I, I wanted to write when I was in high school and college, but um, I kind of shifted my focus and didn't end up doing anything remotely related to writing for a career, but I missed it a lot. Um, and I... At the time when I started the blog, I think it was in 2017, um, I was married at the time and was always talking to my then husband, who was not a horror fan at all, about all these horror movies. And one day he said to me, I'm sorry, but I just do not care. <laughs> Why don't you start a blog so you can get all this stuff out? because I can tell you need an outlet for it. So why don't you write about it? And I thought, you know what? I will do that. <laughs> so, yeah, um, I started um, I started writing about movies. Um, I didn't really know what I was doing. Um, I look back and look at some of the older posts and just cringe, but I, I don't have the heart to delete them, honestly. Um, <laughs> but, yes, I started writing about movies. Um, 
And then about maybe a year later, I still really loved kids' books, um, especially scary kids' books. So I started a second blog where all I talk about is scary kids' books. And then I realized that I really... I thought I was better at talking about books than I was at talking about movies. I wasn't very secure um, in my ability to talk about movies or my knowledge of, like, the mechanics of actually making a film. Um, So I thought, well, I'll start doing stuff on my adult blog about books as well. So I had both of them running at the same time, and that's how I kind of switched gears a little um, because I, I found the book blogging world was really... There was a lot of access to, you know, a lot of really good books that I was really excited about reading, and I was getting good responses to the reviews that I was posting. Um, So that's kind of why things shifted a little. But, you know, since then, I think it was probably earlier this year, um, I I really missed talking about movies. Um, And I started writing, you know, some movie reviews on my blog and then started... um, looking primarily on Twitter for opportunities to write for other people and, you know, get my work read and get my work edited so I could improve at it, you know? Um, so I, I reached out to, um, uh, Nightmarish Conjurings, um, Shane and McGrew over there, um, put out a call for writers. I had been kind of looking for people who were willing to take on, you know, less experienced people, people who didn't really have any connections or a whole lot of, um, experience in the industry and she's been really supportive and really helpful um, so I started working for them and I've been sending out pitches since then um, so it's 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 really exciting it's really scary but it's also um, it's something I've wanted to do for so long that I'm finally trying to start to do so I'm, I'm really excited about it but I still do the book reviews as well so this podcast kind of got started in the same way because the the three of us we um, were looking to do reviews as a as a group, and so we ended up going doing the same thing, but through um, Ginger Nuts of Horror. Oh uh, yeah. Where we kind of have the same, I guess, startup of. You know, there's so many of these um, horror publications that are these big ones, but mm-hmm. you know, there is kind of that intimidation factor. It feels like, even though right. you know, there most of these other sites or blogs or whatever they're producing um the same type of quality mm-hmm. but going back a little bit and talking about books of that there is this weird element to it where for a lot of most of the population or people that are just kind of getting into the horror genre there's this mentality that with like horror books it's you know stephen king dean Koontz, um whatever the, the main right. ones are. Yeah, like Ben, Clive Barker, like those are the, the three, yeah. Are making a living or at least you know, churning out a lot of books that most people don't really see, but so how, how do you find them or do they, is it one of those things where now they're searching out you specifically? And um, Well, it's kind of a combination of some people email me looking for a review, especially with the kids blog because kids horror books is really a niche <laughs> in the blogging world. So if somebody's got like a, a spooky kid story, they a lot of times they'll come to me, not everybody obviously, because I'm not like some huge blogger, but um, you know, sometimes people reach out to me saying, you know, I'd really like to get a review for this book. Sometimes um, 
like I, I look through Twitter um, because I follow a lot of authors and a lot of publishers. Um, if anybody puts out a call like, hey, let me know if you want an ARC, an advanced reader copy of this book, or if you want a copy of this already published book for review, let me know. Um, and also, I there are a few websites where you can get on if you want to get into book blogging where you can set up a profile. Um, one of them is called NetGalley and the other one's called Edelweiss. And you can request books that way, and I've gotten a lot that way. Um, and sometimes it's the the major authors, the ones you've everybody's heard of, and a lot of times it's smaller ones from smaller presses, which is really exciting to me. Because I mean, I'll probably get my horror card revoked. I have not read a lot of Stephen King, and I've never read anything by Dean Koontz, but I read a lot of indie authors, and they're some of the most interesting and most exciting authors to me. Not that Dean Koontz and Stephen King aren't, but I like finding the people that not everybody knows about or um, that are just starting out. Um, and I like being able to say, hey, I know you guys love, you know, Carrie and Pet Cemetery, but check out this book also because you it might be up your alley, you know? Yeah. No, I, uh, I guess I'll get mine revoked as well because I have only, I think I've only read a couple Stephen King. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. So I'm kind of in the same boat, and I know um, that is one of those strange because over, again, the states he's, you know, I, I mean he is an amazing writer. I'm not saying it. Oh yeah, you know, yeah, oh, of course. But I was listening to others talk from the UK or places like that, and they said that while they acknowledge that he's an amazing writer, there's because I think he just because he talks so much about small town. America and small town mm-hmm. Maine, there's kind of that disconnect. Oh, uh, that makes sense. I can see that. Yeah. And so, I guess, kind of going into the I'm trying to think which way to take this out because there is a topic. <laughs> oh, wait, on that one because that's a okay. Um, <laughs> so, going into kind of being an independent blogger and writer for kind of the modern era, era of horror, mm-hmm. what is, has that been like for you? Because I know. And we're going to get into it in a second, but there is kind of a shift starting that because of several factors, especially pushed forward with COVID. But at least when you were first starting out like with social media and wish with all of these. Yeah, it's like I, Twitter is a real lifeline for me. Like I see other people talking about upcoming books or movies or, you know, things they're excited about um, or I see creators promoting their work so it's a good way to find i don't want to say smaller but you know a smaller press than or um a less well-known author than like the big giants of the industry you know i like i said social media is obviously anybody who's on twitter or anything else for any amount of time knows it's it's a it's a double-edged sword like you can meet a lot of friends and you can get a lot of good information but if you you know, doom scroll your whole day away or something, <laughs> you're not going to get a lot done. And you might, you know, um, especially with somebody who doesn't have a huge audience, sometimes it can feel like you're just shouting into the void. Yeah. Like you, you want people to, to read or listen to or watch your content and you want feedback, you know, especially if it's good feedback, you don't necessarily want, you know, bad comments, but, um, but sometimes it can feel like you're just out there doing your own thing and nobody really cares. But I know that, like, authors and filmmakers feel the same way. So that's, I really enjoy being able to, you know, read a book and say, hey, I don't 
see anybody else talking about this book, but it's amazing. You should pick it up. Um, and I, the best thing ever is when somebody says, oh, I read this book based on your recommendation. It was so good. Or, oh, I'm going to pick this up now because I, you know, this sounds really exciting. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm not sure if I answered your question or not. No, but <laughs> Yeah, no, it's perfect. Uh, I think that kind of goes into a little bit because of this, especially with social media. This is, I guess, kind of where we're getting into the, the heavier portion of the yeah. um, of this idea. And then, you know, COVID really pushed it forward. But even before then, you have the with the Me Too movement. And then, um, you know, I've noticed because I normally, for myself personally, I write more um, film related blogs, even though I read horror. I actually tend to be the opposite, where I always have little um, insecurities about writing um, reviews for prose. Oh. Yeah, so, but what I've been finding is that by reading all these different on Twitter, all these different kind of sites that cover these books, that there is this movement going on where a lot of these smaller companies that may have had an author that was harassing other um, uh, reviewers because they were, you know, they gave a bad review or whatever the purpose was. Yeah. You know, um, more people are kind of standing together and saying, okay, well, we're not going to review this person or we're not going to no longer promote this whole publishing company's books mm -hmm. things like that. So I think I'm kind of interested in hearing about, I guess, the shift, at least from, a, you know, the kind of book standpoint and from like running your own blog standpoint. Yeah, um, that's honestly, that's another reason that I'm grateful in a lot of ways for Twitter, because especially if you are not necessarily one of the major sites or one of the major figures in the industry or the scene or whatever, sometimes you don't hear about things, especially, you know, like you're talking about with me too, in, in pretty much every industry, there are all these whisper networks where, you know, victims of harassment or assault, um, they, they don't feel like they have the power to speak up, but they talk to each other to, to try to protect each other. And I think moving toward a point where people, especially marginalized people, don't feel like they have to stay in those whisper networks. They can actually speak up and say something and people will support them. I think that's a good thing. And I, I'm glad to see people calling stuff out like that on Twitter, like saying, you know, this author or this publisher or this actor or whoever has been mistreating people. They have assaulted people or harassed people or they create a toxic work environment. I'm really thankful to the people who are brave enough to speak up. Um, but I'm not um, casting any aspersions on people who don't speak up because I understand that fear yeah. very much. Um, but it's, uh, you know, the, especially like particularly in book blogging, there have been a couple of specific incidents really, really recently where, you know, an author was harassing some reviewers um, and I don't have any, I didn't have this experience with this author. So I'm not going to start naming names or anything because that's not my story to tell. But I, I'm glad that for the most part, the book community and the horror community have stood behind the people who were harassed and said, we're not going to support this company because they are, they're not making amends to the victims. Yeah. And I mean, there are people in every industry who will take advantage or just act badly. Um, but 
in this community, I think for the most part, we all want to support each other and protect each other and just, you know, talk about horror or talk about things we like and not have to deal with, you know, being harassed or feeling unsafe in that community that we're, everybody's trying to build. I, I noticed that more kind of the Me Too adjacent issues in horror books, um, but that's where I'm spending all my time. So it may be happening the same everywhere. And I'm just, I'm seeing what I'm seeing because that's the only place on Twitter that I really spend any time. You know, and it's not just authors or um, publishing companies. I, there are people in every position yeah. who need to be called out. Um, but I, I'm hopeful that we're getting to a point where the people who are speaking up and saying this happened to me aren't facing negative consequences. Um, their people are still getting harassed. Like the people who are speaking up are still getting sock puppet accounts harassing them or getting all these DMs or whatever, you know. Um, but I'm hopeful that you know if we keep speaking up and we keep saying you know no we're not going to put up with this you're not going to harass this person we stand with them. I'm I'm hopeful that that will start making a positive difference oh that's yeah great and i I completely agree so i guess um what is kind of one of the topics that got this interview rolling um that we can kind of move into is this is the talk discussing gender and horror if because i know you said that you kind of had a lot of thoughts on it and it was something that really interests you so i'd love to just go into that chatting yeah absolutely um, yeah, I, I, I put out the, the call kind of like, I just, I hear all these great podcasts. I really like to appear on one. Um, and when I'm watching movies or reading books, um, the things that always pop out to me or usually do are, you know, gender relations or how horror explores gender and sexuality. Um, so it's, it's something I like talking about just because that's, um, one of my biggest interests and one of the things that always jumps out at me, kind of talking about how the industry is changing. Um, I was looking some stuff up because I wanted to have a timeline in my head before we had this conversation. Because, like, it feels like so many things today, both in horror literature and in horror film and TV, the things I'm most excited about are projects from women. Um, like in film, like Nia DaCosta directing Candyman. I'm so excited about that. Who knows um, when that'll come out or when we'll ever be in a theater again. Um, but hopefully... You know, everybody will get to see that soon. But And like Misha Green, the showrunner on Lovecraft Country, I don't know if you've seen that yet, but that first episode was amazing. And I, oh, it's so good. Currently been very rural area until the end of the month, and then I get to go back and watch it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I, I, I hope you'll love it. I really loved the first episode. And I've heard from pretty much everybody who's reviewed it that episode five is just the the best thing they've ever seen so i can't wait for like you know four or five weeks from now when that airs but yeah and i was looking up you know trying to make sure my mind wouldn't go blank when we were talking so i looked up some of my like female directors that i like and i remembered um about two years ago when jason blum had that famous quote that infamous quote about you know there aren't a whole lot of female directors out there and uh, you know and very few of those want to do horror and then everybody jumped on him immediately and he apologized for it but i feel like there's been i don't know if it was in you know 
partly due to that, you know, that conversation turning, but it feels like there's been a bigger focus on women leading horror, like focusing on women directors and, you know, like, I think women have always been at the forefront of the genre, at least as actors, because nobody talks about screen kings. They just talk about screen queens, you know, Um, but there's not much of an acknowledgement that women are such leaders in horror. But it feels like that is changing to me. I may be I'm I'm not usually a rosy person, but I may I may have my rose colored glasses on for that. But it feels like it's changing. It feels like the conversation's changing with women getting more opportunities and um, being boosted more. Especially women of color, like I, I mentioned, Nita Costa and Nisha Green. So it's interesting the way you're talking about it because um, was it when you know there is that whole history too of that for the longest time it was viewed as horror is this in the same vein style as that how they um, view comic books where it's like only for young men type of thing. Mm-hmm. Well, that's the audience, and you know then you see. What was it the slashes of the 70s and the film like Maniac? And you know, you had all these people coming out saying how awful it was, and you know, because of that, they ended up shifting where slashes became more supernatural and less realistic. But um, they're finding when actually looking at it, I think this was on History for it's it's been talked about a bunch, but um, that there were more women in the audience for films like that than there were men. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, I always think it, it, it's, it is one of those kind of interesting conversations that, it, same with you know people of color, it, it's you know where you know all of these things are always seen as they like, go. Oh, it's just young white men are the only audience member, and that's who they market to for decades. But you actually see no, they're they're actually in a lot of cases they're a minority themselves. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and and I'm a huge comic book fan too, so I've experienced that in in horror and in comics. But you know, I know so many people who aren't straight white men who are fans of comics and fans of horror. And like, but the vast majority of my friends are horror fans or women. Um, I, I can't speak for anybody but myself. I think part of I, I wrote about this recently in a piece on my blog about the movie Haunt. Um, it was on Shudder. I don't know if you've seen that one. I didn't get to watch all of it. Gotcha. Yeah. I really loved that one. But um, part of a lot of what I enjoy about horror, um, you know, I, I love I love gore. I love a good slasher. I, I like a good kill as much as anybody. But also, a lot of times it helps me kind of exercise my fears in a safe environment and not only are some slashers more feminist than i think some people give them credit for not all of them obviously i'm not going to defend every slasher out there as you know secretly feminist um but i think for some women it it's a way to kind of exercise um fear of violence in a world dominated by men um in a safe fun way um especially with you know seeing all these final girls who are heroes to a lot of people you know Lori strode you know nancy from nightmare on elm street you know sydney from the scream series like um so many people look up to those women as heroes you know because they're survivors um and i think there are a lot of 
survivors of all different kinds in the horror audience. Um, like I said, I can't speak for anybody else. I'm not going to ascribe any, you know, psychological significance to every single horror fan out there. But I think that plays into it a lot, though. Well, I think it's yeah, it's kind of this interesting topic, and I'm glad that a lot of this, you know, especially you know, we've re- touched on social media a lot, and I think that's kind of really helped kind of bring a lot of this to to the light. Yeah, because so many people are talking about it together and saying, "Oh, I had the exact same experience. I didn't realize." Someone felt the same way. Exactly. And because we talked on it, you mentioned it briefly, and so it's been on my mind, and we've been hinting at it little bits here and there. So it's changing subjects a little bit, but not fully. But um, talking about the future of horror and the industry, and especially, you know, the elephant in the room, obviously, is with everything that's happened in 2020. (laughs) COVID... You have you know, the election. You have just a slew of things that yeah. you know when you talk to people a lot of times, especially um, for me doing this with people in the I guess the the film industry portion of it, mm-hmm. they um, really look at it as there's either the response of that you know well theaters will reopen but they'll only be they'll basically be for big event or movies or tentpole movies. And then yeah. everything else would go to online. And that's been something that was, they've been, has been slowly transitioning to anyways. It just pushed it forward quickly. Right. So right. Like that. And yeah, I'd love to hear kind of what your thoughts are on like, moving forward. And if there, if we've kind of passed this, a point of no return, I guess, for the industry portion of it. And then, yeah, and then the, if, how the genre you think will move forward as a, right. a story. Yeah. Honestly, I'm really interested to see that myself. Like, when I think when COVID first started, everybody, especially I heard this um, in book circles, everybody was like, well, here come the pandemic stories. Yeah. You know, everybody was thinking, um, because obviously horror reflects, you know, our modern fears, you know, and pandemic stories have always been pretty popular, but right now they're obviously very relevant. I'm not, I like the idea that we'll move even further into VOD being, you know, first run for a lot of movies just because it's so much easier um, for people, whether it's financially or if you're disabled and you can't get to the theater very easily, you know, I think it opens up a lot of access for people. I, I, I can't speak to the, like, the financial aspect, like, you know, I, I think that's why like new mutants which has been delayed for like four years they they keep saying they're going to open at the end of this month and i i I don't i don't know why they won't just go vod because i think a lot of people would pay a lot of money to see it right now but um so i think there are some studios still holding on to that tentpole idea like they think the the industry is going to stay with the mcu model where you have midnight showings where you sell out the theater but i i don't know that that's Obviously, that's not feasible right now because it's not safe to congregate in huge groups. Obviously, well, not obviously because some people don't like the theater, but a lot of people miss that communal theater experience. I know I've always enjoyed seeing horror movies with a big group of people. Um, But I I would love to see more access and more VOD um, for everything, Um, not just for new releases. Like, I, I would love to see like back catalogs opened up just to 
kind of break down the walls of access for people who don't live in a major city and they can't get to a festival or a, a limited run engagement for some indie movie. Um, but as far as like storytelling, I the immediate effects, I'm not sure how it's going to work. I like obviously host, I thought was brilliant, um, but not everybody is going to be able to make a Zoom movie and make it fresh and interesting and you know, <laughs> like not everybody can pull that off. And I, I've heard about some movies. I think the um, a Zack Snyder, a Zack Snyder, excuse me, I can't talk right now. A Zack Snyder movie um, where he's recast an actor, and we'll just be doing reshoots with green screen and CGI. Uh, I kind of selfishly hope we don't go to the point where like actors are like filming in separate locations and they're CGIing like twenty people into a room together. Um. Just frankly, I, I, there's something very creepy to me about that. But if that works, then that's the way we're going to have to do it to keep everybody safe, yeah. making movies and stuff. Um, but I, I do expect to see a lot of maybe not direct, you know, pandemic stories, but that kind of fear of other people seeping in in specific 2020 ways. Yeah. Um, like kind of maybe a return to like the paranoia of the late 70s um yeah i actually read um i can't remember if i read about it i heard it on another podcast where they were talking about that saying that they were were thinking that it would instead of being like a zombie type movies would go towards more invasion of the body snatchers exactly yeah yeah, that's that's the movie I had in my mind. That sense of you can't trust anybody, you can't be around anybody. Which I mean, I that's one of my favorite movies ever, and that's a a vibe that I really that really resonates with me, um, especially this year when I mean everything is in utter chaos and you feel like you you can't leave your house. It's not safe to go anywhere. I mean that that's a theme that I think people will be able to explore really well. And you asked about like George Floyd and Black Lives Matter, you know, finally gaining a little bit of traction and getting a little more attention. I'm, I'm hopeful that I, I was talking earlier about how I feel like, especially black women creators are getting more opportunities maybe, or more noticed like with Lovecraft country. That's a brilliant story about racism especially in Jim Crow America and I you know exploring stories like that where the scariest thing isn't the supernatural monsters it's you know the horrible things that black people and other marginalized people have had to go through I I'm excited to see stories like that and to see them get a lot of notice and get a lot of attention so I think and you know I'd be interested to see a kind of combination of those things where a, a black filmmaker tells a story about the paranoia we were discussing, yeah. like kind of invasion of the body snatchers. Um, you know, cause the whole idea of you can't trust your own body. You don't know who's who, um, you don't know who you can trust. That's obviously something that a lot of people can relate to, but especially not knowing who you can trust as a black American, you know, not knowing, you know, what white person is safe to be around. Um, those are things that I'd really be interested to see explored. Yeah. yeah I think, I mean, I am very, I'm kind of grateful to start seeing these, um, this diversity in kind of the storytelling because we're also getting, I think, new or fresh approaches. I know it's been 
an argument that I've had, and a peaceful one at that, but with um, some of the horror community of, you know, there was a slew of, you know, where you either get um, something that's witch-related, but it takes place in New England based on, um, you know, Christian themes and so on and so forth, and it was kind of, for me, like, I could notice really good ones, you know, there's the witch, things like that, but then also I'd love to see a different approach that isn't, you know, the, the Salem-based Yes, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, absolutely. And, like, there's so much to explore, like you said, not just timeline-wise, but, like, culturally. Like, it's not just, you know, white witches in the 16th, you know, 15th, 16th century dress, you know, speaking with an English accent. You know, there, there are modern witches. There are witches from all over the world. And you can tell so many interesting stories, especially where the witches are not the villains. You know, obviously a lot of stories like The Witch. I've heard that Eggers takes issue, I may be incorrect on this, but that he takes issue with people seeing it as a story of empowerment against, you know, evil Christianity. But for the most part, I think a lot of movies do portray witches as villains, and I'd love to see them, you know, maybe as the heroes or something more nuanced than just villain or hero, you know? Another interesting topic to and discuss is this idea of um especially in horror lately there's this feeling um, and i've talked about it a lot but um where a hero needs to be where it it seems like there is this shift of you know certain filmmakers or storytellers or whoever they are maybe it's coming from the fans themselves probably more so of wanting it to be this black and white where you have the hero is good and whatever and then the villain is right and bad and whatever where um you can have you know a quote-unquote likable character that is also a villain you know likable means or is more compel it means compelling than somebody you agree with i guess Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, a lot of times, um, sometimes the hero, quote-unquote, is the boring one. Everybody identifies with the villain. But yeah, I mean, since horror explores so much about, you know, what lies below the surface and the things that scare us the most, there should be a lot of nuance. And there should be stories where nobody's the hero because nobody maybe is capable of being a hero in a horrifying world, you know? Like, there should be ways to explore, you know, people doing bad things and not necessarily being the villain or um you know like i said play i I really like movies where there is no hero where there's there are just different shades of, of of darkness and it's just examining the possibility in human nature to do what you need to survive sometimes that's a, a big aspect in horror as well so going back a little bit, I guess, to some of these topics of race and t- talking about Lovecraft Country and all that, I know that's been a big thing that I've been reading about, especially with reviews on this show, is or the joke that's been made is, well, now you're going to get, how do they phrase it, out of the woodworks, you're going to get all the people trying to defend Lovecraft racism and say that oh, he was just everybody's racist at that time or stuff like that. So... If you want to talk about, (laughs) yeah. Well, first of all, for anybody listening, 
I'm white, so take everything I say with a grain of salt. <laughs> like, if if you want to hear about what people have to say about Lovecraft Country or Lovecraft in general, I would recommend you go listen to a black critic. So I just I want to have that caveat out there right now. But even obviously, I take issue with oh well, that's just how people were at the time. No, racism is racism, no matter what year it was. But even for the time, people recognized how racist Lovecraft was. Yeah. He, I mean, it's it's pretty monstrous, <laughs> to be honest with you. I I do like, I've seen a lot of people trying to reclaim, or that might not be the right word, but kind of rename Lovecraftian horror as cosmic horror. Yeah. Because he wasn't he wasn't the only person to write in that vein, the, the fear of the cosmic unknown. Yeah. Um, and he wasn't the first person. He may be the most famous. Um, but it's not something that he owns by virtue of, you know, well, he wrote, you know, Mountains of Madness, so this is Lovecraftian horror. No, um, so, I mean, if you, you can acknowledge, like, I read this book of his, and I, I like this approach that he took in terms of this gnawing feeling of just being such a small speck in such a big, possibly malevolent universe. Um, but you have to acknowledge that even the core of some of his stories was rooted in racism. Yeah. I mean, I've enjoyed seeing some of the takes like, you know, I know Lovecraft is rolling in his grave right now after Lovecraft Country aired because, you know, it's about, you know, lifting up black voices and black people and showing how horrible and terrifying racism was and continues to be it's taking kind of a a theme that lovecraft was fond of and using it to point out everything that was wrong with the man yeah. sort of not that that's all that the show is about but so i've really enjoyed seeing so many people respond to it that way and again i, I can't speak for anybody else and i especially can't speak for a black critic or a black viewer i always want to hear more voices and learn about things that aren't my experience yeah. because there were there were moments in the show where I'm ashamed to say I was shocked because I it's one thing to know intellectually about something and it's another thing to watch it happen and to watch it happen to a character that you care about yeah. and I have a massive amount of privilege that I've never had to watch you know racist violence against somebody in my family because my family's white yeah. um, I'm sure a lot of the things in the show weren't as shocking to people who grew up with it or have family members who grew up with it. But I think that's an important part of the show. Um, in addition to being just really brilliant and really entertaining, it also shows some privileged people. Like, this is the the country, you know, from people in the United States. This is the country you grew up in. This is the country that your parents grew up in. This is, you have to face this past and we have to do something to fix it moving forward, you know. Oh, I agree. And I think, yeah, that's a, a great way to kind of put it is that there is this mentality sometimes, especially uh, in the state of, oh, well, it's in the past. And so it's no, no longer a problem. Oh, right. you, know, you know, it was, or I wasn't the one that did it type of thing. So it's not right. And I think something that should still be addressed and should still be, you didn't have to do it to be, um, to still, I, I don't know if it's take ownership, but take, you know, understand the responsibility or understand that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you know, the past informs the present, it informs the future, and if you just abdicate responsibility like that, then you are the problem, you know? 
going back a little bit, and then because I went Lovecraft, it was originally called was it Weird Fiction, I think, or something. Because there are, yeah. Even though I don't think there's really been any major works of his, there's May or adapted. There's Algernon Blackwood. There's there are a series of these mm-hmm. other authors that came out during that time, but just kind of yeah, it's all become Lovecraft. <laughs> right. Yeah. Everybody uses it as the shorthand. But I, I even, I just, I like cosmic horror because it, it places a sense of scale to it because that sense of, you know, I'm a, a tiny plaything for the universe and I have no control. I just like that it immediately gives you that sense of awe and horror. It makes sense, more sense to me. I've always felt because there are some yeah. stories that don't necessarily, they, they're, they're definitely cosmic horror, but I would never say that they're Lovecraftian in there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so, going a little bit, and because I don't think I've said the really talk about your blog more so, because we've mentioned that you do it, but um, you kind of give the name and give so people can find you and kind of all that self. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, all my all my promos. Um, so my name on Twitter is We Who Walk Here, um, and that's the name of the blog as well. Um, it's We Who Walk Here dot blog, and I do. Lately, pretty much a mixture of book reviews and movie reviews, um, sometimes like a full movie review and sometimes a list of like, I watched these 20 movies last month and here's a tiny little review of what I thought about each one of them. And, you know, I, I also write for some other sites. I've got links on my Twitter uh, account and I always post those and retweet those and um, try to support other writers on those sites as well because there are a lot of amazing writers out there. And... Uh, also, the, the kids' book blog is spookykidlit.com, um, and that's pretty much all book reviews. It's like, I know this sounds silly, but it's horror books from ages 0 to 18, and there are, you know, scary books for babies out there. So, <laughs> but yeah, and um, I'm primarily write for uh, nightmarishconjurings.com. I do a lot of work there. Um, and I'm, you know, working on some other stuff. I just had a fil- uh, piece published on film cred a day or two ago. So like I said, you can find links to all that on my Twitter page. I forgot to talk about kind of learning more about children or spooky children's book. So for, I guess, um, before we go into that, is there, or just for the sake of this, um, podcast where a lot of times we talk about kind of independent, obscure um, horror cinema, and it doesn't have to be cinema, it can be a book, it can be anything, but is there any kind of obscure um, works that you really champion and wish? I, I don't know how obscure it is. Um, I've got a couple of answers. As far as books go, whenever anybody asks me for a horror book recommendation, I always say Come Closer by Sarah Graham. Um, it's a novella. Um, I read really slowly, and I think it took me less than an hour to read it. So, um, But it is the scariest possession story I've ever read. It's about a woman who becomes possessed by a demon and you know going back to our talk about gender it really explores through the narrative of a possession how she loses herself in her marriage and how she loses her sense of identity and it's 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 really good it's really terrifying i the first time i read it i um you know hid under the blankets with all the houses or all the lights in the house on so (laughs) so i highly recommend it if you want something scary and if you want something you know fast but thought-provoking and as far as movies um i 
again, I don't know how obscure it is, but I could talk for hours about Terror Vision. It, it is one of my favorite movies. I think it's a lot better than most people give it credit for. It's usually mentioned in like, oh, it's so bad, it's good. But no, it's just good. <laughs> so that's, if you haven't seen it, I to anybody listening, I highly recommend you check it out. I think 1986 is when it came out. Um, the less you know, the better. Just go in and watch it and enjoy all the craziness. I'd love to hear, because uh, like you said before, it is kind of a niche of scary stories for children. Zero to eight. Yeah. Uh, when I was growing up, it was, what, there's um, scary stories to tell in the dark? Wasn't yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah wasn't. Then you had <laughs> um, the Right. And I grew up in... Uh, from Michigan, so we had the Michigan Chillers, yeah, which were basically like a goosebump knockoff. But I'd love to hear more about that portion of the, the book world. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, so, like I said, I cover everything for ages zero to eighteen. So, like from like board books or picture books all the way up to young adult there are a lot of really you know people aren't writing bloody slasher stories for babies but there are you know in the older age ranges there are some really scary books and some really quality books out there right now and have been for some time like i said when i was growing up it was you know scary stories that tell in the dark i read a lot of john bellairs but there are a lot of really great ghost stories especially in middle grade which is like ages 8 to 12 and to an adult I'm sure you're thinking oh that sounds like torture that sounds really dumb but there are some amazing books out there and there are especially in YA and young adult there are some you know really scary really funny really smart books there's a book coming out I want to say next week um, called Clown in a Cornfield which is a YA book it's a total you know love letter to slashers but it's also got a really smart political bent to it you know if you want to get into maybe younger horror i think that's a good gateway because it satisfies the urge for blood and gore but it's also you know for a younger audience but yeah i i'm I'm trying to think of some others to recommend but i just there's so much out there that that even i haven't been able to keep up with because you know um children's book authors and young adult authors they cover a lot of a lot of the things that horror covers, you know, universal fears, universal experiences, fear of growing up, fear of loss. There's a lot of dealing with grief and things like that. And there, some of them are really political, like a lot of horror is really political. I think kids' books get kind of a bad rap a lot of times. People look down on them a little bit, or they look down on adults who read kids' books. Um, but there's so much quality horror out there in the kids' books world. You know, you have people talking about horror and you know, that oh horror is only effective if it's rated R and stuff like that and mm-hmm. it's kind of a argument that I think is that you haven't seen the right stuff or you haven't seen <laughs> the right exactly exactly yeah because I mean you can have a movie with no nudity no gore no blood and it's the scariest thing ever like the haunting the original haunting is probably my favorite horror movie and it's all a suggestion it's all you know sound design and it's it's terrifying you know you can do a lot with a, a very little and without going for nc-17 to shock people not that there's anything wrong with that i like a good nc-17 movie but you know what i mean <laughs> this has been a great chat i think i've learned a lot about kind of the book world and just 
of horror in general. And I'll definitely check out Lovecraft Country, and then um, when yeah, I'm able to finally. <laughs> but yeah, <laughs> it's been a real pleasure chatting with you, Jessica. Likewise, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And if you ever want to come back on and talk, do a whole episode on Terror Vision or anything else, <laughs> feel free to. Awesome. I would love it, honestly. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Bloodhound Picks Podcast is part of the Morbidly Beautiful Podcast Network. Produced by Josh Lee, Craig Drum, and Kyle Hintz. Music by Raymond Seed. Editing by Kyle Hintz.